Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. There is not in all London a quieter spot, or one apparently more withdrawn from the heat and bustle of life than Newsom Terrace. It's a cul-de-sac for at the upper end of the roadway between its two lines of square, compact little residences is brought to an end by a high brick wall, while at the lower end, the only access to it is through Newsom Square, that small, discreet oblong of Georgian houses, a relic of the time when Kensington was a suburban village, sundered from the metropolis by a stretch of pastures stretching to the river. Both square and terrace are most inconveniently situated for those whose ideal environment includes a rank of taxicabs immediately opposite their door, a spate of buses roaring down the street, and a procession of underground trains, accessible by station a few yards away, shaking and rattling the cutlery and silver on their dining tables. In consequence, Newsom Terrace had come two years ago to be inhabited by leisurely and retired folk, or by those who wished to pursue their work in quiet and tranquility. Children with hoops and scooters are a phenomenon rarely encountered in the terrace, and dogs are equally uncommon. In front of each of the couple of dozen houses of which the terrace is composed lies a little square of railinged garden, in which you may often see the middle-aged or elderly mistress of the residence horticulturally employed. By five o'clock of a winter's evening, the pavements will generally be empty of all passengers except the policeman, who, with felted step at intervals throughout the night, peers with his bull's eyes into these small front gardens, and never finds anything more suspicious there than an early crocus or ansonite. For by the time it is dark, the inhabitants of the terrace have got themselves home, where, behind drawn curtains and bolted shutters, they will pass a domestic and uninterrupted evening. No funeral, up to the time I speak of, had I ever seen leave the terrace. No marriage party had strewed its pavements with confetti, and perambulators were unknown. It and its inhabitants seemed to be quietly mellowing like bottles of sound wine. No doubt there was stored within them the sunshine and summer of youth long past, and now, dozing in a cool place, they waited for the turn of the key in the cellar door, and the entry of one who would draw them forth and see what they were worth. Yet after the time of which I will now speak, I have never passed down its pavement without wondering whether each house, so seemingly tranquil, is not. Like some dynamo, softly and smoothly bringing into being vast and terrible forces, such as those I once saw at work in the last house at the upper end of the terrace, the quietest, you would have said, of all the row. Had you observed it with continuous scrutiny, for all the length of a summer day, it is quite possible that you might have only seen issue from it in the morning, and an elderly woman who you would have rightly conjectured to be the housekeeper, with her basket for marketing on her arm, who returned an hour later. Except for her, the entire day might often pass without there being either ingress 
or egress from the door. Occasionally, a middle-aged man, lean and wiry, came swiftly down the pavement, but his exit was by no means a daily occurrence, and indeed, when he did emerge, he broke the almost universal usage of the terrace, for his appearances took place, when such there were, between nine and ten in the evening. At that hour, sometimes he would come round to my house in Newsome Square to see if I was home, and inclined for a talk a little later on. For the sake of air and exercise, he would then have an hour's tramp through the lit and noisy streets, and return about ten, still pale and unflushed, for one of those talks which grew to have an absorbing fascination for me. More rarely through the telephone, I proposed that I should drop in on him. This I did not often do, since I found that if he did not come out himself, it implied that he was busy with some investigation, and though he made me welcome, I could easily see that he burned for my departure, so that he might get busy with his batteries and pieces of tissue, hot on the track of discoveries that never yet had presented themselves to the mind of a man as coming within the horizon of possibility. My last sentence may have led the reader to guess that I am indeed speaking of none other than that recluse and mysterious physicist, Sir James Horton, with whose death a hundred half-hewn avenues into the dark forest from which life comes must wait completion, till another pioneer as bold as he takes up the axe which hitherto none but himself has been able to wield. Probably there was never a man to whom humanity owed more, and of whom humanity knew less. He seemed utterly independent of the race to whom, though indeed with no service of love, he devoted himself. For years he lived aloof and apart in his house at the end of the terrace. Men and women were to him like fossils to the geologists, things to be tapped and hammered and dissected and studied with a view not only to the reconstruction of past ages, but to construction in the future. It is known, for instance, that he made an artificial being formed of the tissues still living of animals lately killed with the brain of an ape in the heart of a bullock, in the sheep's thyroid, and so forth. Of that I can give no first-hand accounts. Horton, it is true, told me something about it, and in his will directed that certain memoranda on the subject should, on his death, be sent to me. But on the bulky envelope there is the direction not to be opened till January 1925. He spoke with some reserve, and, so I think, with slight horror at the strange things which had happened on the completion of this creature. It evidently made him uncomfortable to talk about, and for that reason I fancy he put what was then a rather remote date to the day when his record should reach my eye. Finally, in these preliminaries for the last five years before the war, he had scarcely entered, for the sake of a companionship, any house other than his own and mine. Ours was a friendship dating from school days, which he had never suffered to drop entirely, but I doubt if in those years he spoke, except on matters of business, to half a dozen other people. He had already retired from surgical practice in which his skill was unapproached, and most completely now did he avoid the slightest intercourse with his colleagues, whom he regarded as ignorant pedants with no courage or the rudiments of knowledge. 
Now and then he would write an epoch-making little monograph, which he flung to them like a bone to a starving dog, but for the most part, utterly absorbed in his own investigations, he left them to grope along unaided. He frankly told me that he enjoyed talking to me about such subjects, since I was utterly unacquainted with them. It clarified his mind to be obliged to put his theories and guesses and confirmations with such simplicity that anyone could understand them. I well remember his coming in to see me on the evening of the 4th of August, 1914. So the war has broken out, he said, and the streets are impassable with excited crowds. Odd, isn't it? Just as if each of us already was not a far more murderous battlefield than any which can be conceived between warring nations. How's that? said I. Let me try to put it plainly, though. This isn't what I want to talk about. Your blood is one eternal battlefield. It's full of armies internally marching and countermarching. As long as the army's friendly to you, you are in superior position. You remain in good health. If a detachment of microbes that, if suffered to establish themselves, would give you a cold in the head and wrench themselves in your mucous membrane, the commander-in-chief sends a regiment down and drives them out. He doesn't give his orders from your brain, mind you. Those aren't his headquarters, for your brain knows nothing about the landing of the enemy till they have made good their position and given you a cold. He paused for a moment. There isn't one headquarters inside you, he said. There are many. For instance, I killed a frog this morning. At least most people would say I killed it. But had I killed it, though its head lay in one place and its severed body in another, not a bit. I'd only killed a piece of it, for I opened the body afterwards and took out the heart, which I put in a sterilized chamber of suitable temperature so that it wouldn't get cold or be infected by any microbe. That was about twelve o'clock today. When I came out just now, the heart was beating still. It was alive, in fact. That's full of suggestions, you know. Come and see it. The terrace had been stirred into volcanic activity by the news of war. The vendor of some late edition had penetrated into its quiet tide, and there were half a dozen parlor maids fluttering about like black and white moths. But once inside Horton's door, isolation as an arctic night seemed to close around me. He'd forgotten his latch key, but his housekeeper, then newly come to him, who had become so regular and familiar a figure in the terrace, must have heard his step, for before he rang the bell, she had opened the door and stood with his forgotten latchkey in her hand. Thanks, Miss Gabriel, said he, without a sound at the door shut behind us. Both her name and face, as reproduced in some illustrated daily paper, seemed familiar, rather terribly familiar, but before I had time to grope for the association, Horton supplied it. Tried for the murder of her husband six months ago, he said. Odd case. The point is that she is the one and perfect housekeeper. I've had four servants and everything was all mucky as we used to say at school. Now I live in amazing comfort and proprietary with this one. She has everything. She's a cook, valet, housemaid, butler and won't have anyone to help her. No doubt she killed her husband, but she planned it so well that she could not be convicted. 
She told me quite frankly who she was when I engaged her. Of course, I remembered the whole trial vividly now. Her husband, a morose, quarrelsome fellow, tipsy as often as sober, had, according to the defense, cut his own throat while shaving. According to the prosecution, she had done that for him. There was the usual discrepancy of evidence as to whether the wound could have been self-inflicted, and the prosecution tried to prove that the face had been lathered after his throat had been cut. So, singular an exhibition of forethought and nerve had hurt rather than helped her case, and after prolonged deliberation on the part of the jury, she'd been acquitted. Yet not less singular was Horton's selection of parolable murderesses, however efficient, as housekeeper. He anticipated this reflection. Apart from the wonderful comfort of having a perfectly appointed and absolutely silent house, he said, I regard Miss Gabriel as sort of an insurance against my being murdered. If you'd been tried for your life, you'd take very special care not to find yourself in suspicious proximity to a murdered body again. No more deaths in your house, if you could help it. Come through to my laboratory. Look at my little instance of life after death. Certainly, it was amazing to see that little piece of tissue still pulsating with what must be called life. It contracted and expanded faintly indeed, but perceptively through for nine hours now, it had been severed from the rest of the organization. All by itself, it went on living, and if the heart could go on living without nothing... You would say, to feed and stimulate its energy, there must also be, so reasoned Horton, reside in all of the vital organs of the body, other independent focuses of life. Of course, a severed organ like that, he said, will run down quicker than if it had the cooperation of the others, and presently I shall apply a gentle electric stimulus to it. If I can keep that glass bowl under which it beats at the temperature of the frog's body in sterilized air, I don't see why it shouldn't go on living. Food, of course. There's the question of feeding it. Do you see what that opens up in the way of surgery? Imagine a shop with glass cases containing healthy organs taken from the dead. Say a man dies of pneumonia. He should, as soon as ever, the breath is out of his body, be dissected. And they would, of course, destroy his lungs as they would be full of pneumococca, but his liver and digestive organs are probably healthy. Take them out. Keep them in a sterilized atmosphere with the temperature at 98.4 and sell the liver, let us say, to another poor devil who has cancer there. Fit him with a new healthy liver, eh? And insert the brain of someone who has died of heart disease into the skull of a congenital idiot? I asked. Yes, perhaps, but the brain's tirelessly some complicated, and its connections and the joining up of the nerves, you know. Surgery will have to learn a lot before it fits new brains in, and the brain has got such a lot of functions. All thinking, all inventing, seem to belong to it, though. As you have seen, the heart can get on quite well without it. But there are other functions of the brain I want to study first. I've been trying some experiments already. He made some little readjustments to the flame of the spirit lamp, which kept the right temperature the water that surrounded the sterilized receptacle to which the frog's heart was beating. So are the more simple and mechanical uses of the brain, he said. Primarily, it's a sort of record office, a diary. 
Say that I wrap your knuckles with that ruler. What happens? The nerves there send a message to the brain, of course, saying, how can I put it most simply, saying, somebody is hurting me. And the eyes send another, saying, I perceive a ruler hitting my knuckles. And the ear sends another, saying, I hear the rap of it. But leaving all that alone, what else happens? Why, the brain records it. It makes a note of your knuckles have been hit. He had been moving around the room as he spoke, taking off his coat and waistcoat and putting them in their place, a thin black dressing gown, and by now he was seated in his favorite attitude, cross-legged on the hearth rug, looking like some magician or perhaps an Afrid witch, a magician of black arts, had caused to appear. He was thinking intently now, passing through his fingers his string of amber beads and talking more to himself than to me. And how does it make that note, he went on. Why, in the manner in which phonograph records are made. There are millions of minute dots, depressions, pockmarks on your brain which certainly record what you remember, what you have enjoyed or disliked or done or said. The surface of the brain, anyhow, is large enough to furnish writing paper for the record of all these things, of all your memories. If these impressions of an experience has not been acute, the dot is not sharply impressed, and the record fades. In other words, you come to forget it. But if it has been vividly impressed, the record is never obliterated. Mrs. Gabriel, for instance, won't lose the impression of how she lathered her husband's face after she had cut his throat. That's to say, if she did it. Now you see what I'm driving at. Of course you do. There is, stored within a man's head, the complete record of all the memorable things he has done and said. There are all his thoughts there, all of his speeches, and most well marked of all, his habitual thoughts and the things he has often said. For habit, there is reason to believe, wears a sort of rut on the brain so that the life principle, or whatever it is, as it gropes and steals about the brain, it continually stumbling into it. There's your record, your gramophone plate already. What we want, and what I'm trying to arrive at, is a needle which, as it traces its minute way over the dots, will come across words or sentences which the dead have uttered and will reproduce them. My word, what judgment books. What a resurrection. Here, in this withdrawn situation, no remotest echo of the excitement which was seething through the streets penetrated. Through the open window there came in only the tide of the midnight silence. But from somewhere closer at hand, through the wall, surely of the laboratory, there came a low, somewhat persistent murmur. Perhaps our needle, unhappily not yet invented, as it passed over the record of speech in the brain, might induce even facial expression, he said. Enjoyment or horror might even pass over dead features. There might be gestures and movements even, as the words were reproduced in our gramophone of the dead. Some people, when they want to think intensely, walk about. Some, there's an instance of it, audible now, talk to themselves aloud. He held up his finger for silence. 
Yes, that's Miss Gabriel, he said. She talks to herself by the hour together. He's always done that, she tells me. I shouldn't wonder if she has plenty to talk about. It was that night when, first of all, the notion of intense activity going on below the placid house fronts of the terrace occurred to me. None looked more quiet than his, and yet there was seething here of volcanic activity and intensity of living both in the man who sat cross-legged on the floor and behind that voice just audible through the partition wall. But I thought of that no more, for Horton began speaking of the brain gramophone again. Were it possible to trace those infinitesimal dots and pockmarks in the brain by some needle exquisitely fine, it might follow that by the aid of some such contrivance as translated the pockmarks on a gramophone record into sound, some audible rendering of speech might be recovered from the brain of a dead man. It was necessary, so he pointed out to me, that this strange gramophone record should be new. It must be that of one lately dead, for corruption and decay would soon obliterate these infinitesimal markings. He was not of opinion that unspoken thought could be thus recovered. The utmost he hoped for from his pioneering work was to be able to recapture actual speech, especially when such speech had habitually dwelt on one subject and thus had worn a rut on that part of the brain known as the speech center. Let me get, for instance, he said, the brain of a railway porter, newly dead, who'd been accustomed for years to call out the name of a station, and I do not despair of hearing his voice through my gramophone trumpet. Or again, given that Miss Gabriel, in all her interminable conversations with herself, talks about one subject, I might, in similar circumstances, recapture what she'd been constantly saying. Of course, my instrument must be of a power and delicacy still unknown, one of which the needle can trace the minutest irregularities of surface, and of which the trumpet must be of an immense magnifying power, able to translate the smallest whisper into a shout. But just as a microscope will show you the details of an object invisible to the eye, so there are instruments which act in the same way on sound. Here, for instance, is one remarkable of magnifying power. Try it if you like. He took me over to a table on which was standing an electric battery connected with a round steel globe out of the side which sprang a gramophone trumpet of curious construction. He adjusted the battery and directed me to click my fingers quite gently opposite an aperture in the globe, and the noise, ordinarily scarcely audible, resounded through the room like a thunderclap. Something of that sort might permit us to hear the record on a brain, he said. After this night, my visits to Horden became far more common than they had hitherto been. Having once admitted me into the region of his strange explorations, he seemed to welcome me there. Partly, as he had said, it clarified his own thought to put it into simple language. Partly, as he subsequently admitted, he was beginning to penetrate into such lonely fields of knowledge and by paths so utterly untrodden that even he, the most aloof and independent of mankind, wanted some human presence near him. 
Despite his utter indifference to the issues of the war, for in his regard issues far more crucial demanded his energies, he offered himself as surgeon to a London hospital for operations on the brain, and his services naturally were welcomed, for none brought knowledge of skill like his to such work. Occupied all day, he performed miracles of healing with blood and dexterous excisions, which none but he would have dared to attempt. He would operate often successfully for lesions that seemed certainly fatal, and all the time he was learning. He refused to accept any salary. He only asked in cases where he had removed pieces of brain matter to take these away in order by future examination and dissection to add to the knowledge and manipulative skill which he devoted to the wounded. He wrapped these morsels in sterilized lint and took them back to the terrace in a box, electrically heated to maintain the normal temperature of a man's blood. His fragment might then, so he reasoned, keep some sort of independent life of its own, even as the severed heart of a frog had continued to beat for hours without connection with the rest of its body. Then, for half the night, he would continue to work on these sundered pieces of tissue, scarcely dead, which his operations during the day had given him. Simultaneously, he was busy over the needle that must be of such infinite delicacy. One evening, fatigued with long day's work, I just heard with a certain tremor of uneasy anticipation the whistles of warning which heralded an air raid when my telephone bell rang. My servants, according to custom, had already betaken themselves to the cellar, and I went to see what the summon was, determined in any case not to go out into the streets. I recognized Horton's voice. I want to see you at once, he said. But the warning whistles have gone, said I, and I don't like showers of shrapnel. No, never mind that, said he. You must come. I'm so excited that I distrust the evidence of my own ears. I want a witness. Just come. He did not pause for my reply, for I heard the click of his receiver going back into its place. Clearly, he assumed that I was coming, and that, I suppose, had the effect of suggestion on my mind. I told myself that I would not go, but in a couple of minutes his certainty that I was coming, coupled with the prospect of being interested in something else than air raids, made me fidget in my chair and eventually go to the street door and look out. The moon was brilliantly bright, and the square quite empty, and far away the coughing of very distant guns. Next moment, almost against my will, I was running down the deserted pavements of Newsom Terrace. My ring at his bell was answered by Horton before Miss Gabriel could come to the door, and he positively dragged me in. I shan't tell you a word of what I'm doing, he said. I want you to tell me what you hear. Come, into the laboratory. The remote guns were silent. Again, as I sat myself, as directed, in a chair close to the gramophone trumpet, but suddenly through the wall I heard the familiar mutter of Miss Gabriel's voice. Horton, already busy with his battery, sprang to his feet. That won't do, he said. I want absolute silence. He went out of the room, and I heard him calling to her. 
While he was gone, I observed more closely what was on the table. Battery, round steel globe, and gramophone trumpet were there, and some sort of needle on a spiral steel spring linked up with the battery in the glass vessel in which I had seen the frog's heartbeat, and it now lay a fragment of grey matter. Horton came back in a minute or two and stood in the middle of the room listening. That's better, he said. Now, I want you to listen at the mouth of the trumpet. I'll answer any questions afterwards. With my ear turned to the trumpet, I could see nothing of what he was doing and listened till the silence became a rustling in my ears. And suddenly that rustling ceased, for it was overscored by a whisper which undoubtedly came from the aperture on which my oral attention was fixed. It was no more than the faintest murmur, and though no words were audible, it had the timbre of a human voice. "'What, do you hear anything?' asked Horton. "'Yes. Something very faint, scarcely audible. Describe it.' he said. Somebody whispering. I'll try a fresh place, said he. The silence descended again. The mutter of the distant guns was still mute, and some slight creaking from my shirt front as I breathed alone broke it. And then the whispering from the gramophone trumpet began again, and this time much louder than it had been before. It was as if the speaker, still whispering, had advanced a dozen yards, but still blurred and indistinct. More unmistakable, too, was it that the whisper was out of a human voice, and every now and then, whether fancifully or not, I thought I caught a word or two. For a moment, it was silent altogether, and then, with a sudden inkling of what I was listening to, I heard something begin to sing. Though the words were still inaudible, there was melody, and the tune was temporary. From the convulsious-shaped trumpet, there came two bars of it. And what do you hear now? cried Horton, with a crack of exultation in his voice. Singing, singing. That's the tune they all sang. Fine music from that of a dead man. Encore, you say. Yes. Wait a second, he'll sing it again for you. Confound it, I can't get on the place. I've got it. Listen again. Surely that was the strangest manner of song ever yet heard on the earth, this melody from the brain of the dead. Horror and fascination strove within me, and I suppose the first for the moment prevailed, for with a shudder I jumped. Stop it, I said. It's terrible. His face, thin and eager, gleamed in the strong ray of the lamp which he'd placed close to him. His hand was on the metal rod from which depended the spiral spring and the needle which just rested on that fragment of grey stuff which I'd seen in the glass vessel. Yes, I'm going to stop it now, he said where the germs will be getting at my gramophone record, or the record will get cold. See, I spray it with carbolic vapor. I put it back into its nice warm bed. It will sing to us again. But terrible. 
What do you mean by terrible? Indeed, when he asked that, I scarcely knew myself what I meant. I had been witness to a new marvel of science, as wonderful perhaps as any that had ever astounded the beholder in my nerves. These childish whimpers had cried out of the darkness and the profundity. But the horror diminished, the fascination increased, as he quite shortly told me the history of this phenomenon. He had attended that day and operated upon a young soldier in whose brain was embedded a piece of shrapnel. The boy was an extremist, but Horton had hoped for the possibility of saving him. To extract the shrapnel, the only chance, and this involved the cutting away a piece of brain known for the speech center and taking it from what was embedded there. But the hope was not realized, and two hours later the boy died. It was to this fragment of brain that when Horton returned home he had applied the needle of his gramophone and had obtained the faint whispering which had caused him to bring me up so that he might have witness of this wonder. And this is but the first step on the new road, said he, who knows where it may lead, or to what new temple of knowledge it may not be the avenue. Well, it is late. I shall do no more tonight. What about the raid, by the way? To my amazement, I saw that the time was verging on midnight. Two hours had elapsed since he left me at his door. They'd passed like a couple of minutes. Next morning, some neighbors spoke of the prolonged firing that had gone on, of which I had been wholly unconscious. Week after week, Horton worked on this new road of research, perfecting the sensitiveness and subtlety of the needle, and by vastly increasing the power of his batteries, enlarging the magnifying power of his trumpet. Many and many, and even during the next year, did I listen to voices that were dumb in death, and the sounds which had been blurred and intelligible mutterings in the earlier experience developed as the delicacy of his mechanical devices increased into coherence and clear articulation. It was no longer necessary to impose silence on Miss Gabriel when the gramophone was at work, for now the voice we listened to had risen to the pitch of an ordinary human utterance, while as the faithfulness and individuality of these records, striking testimony was given more than once by some living friend of the dead who, without knowing what he was about to hear, recognized the tones of the speaker. More than once also, Miss Gabriel, bringing in siphons and whiskey, provided us with three glasses, for she had heard, so she told us, three different voices in talk. But for the present, no fresh phenomenon had occurred. Horton was but perfecting the mechanism of his previous discovery, and rather grudging the time was scribbling at a monograph, which presently he would toss to his colleagues concerning the results he had already obtained. And then, even while Horton was on the threshold of new wonders, which he had already foreseen and spoken as theoretically possible, there came an evening of marvel and swift catastrophe. I had dined with him that day. Miss Gabriel deftly serving the meal that she had so daintily prepared, and toward the end, as she was clearing up the table for our dessert, she stumbled, I suppose, on a loose edge of carpet, quickly recovering herself. But instantly, Horton checked some half-finished sentence and turned to her. "'You are right, Miss Gabriel,' he asked quickly. "'Yes, sir, thank you,' said she, 
and went on with her serving. As I was saying, began Horton again, but his attention clearly wandered, and without concluding his narrative, he relapsed into silence till Miss Gabriel had given us our coffee and left the room. I'm sadly afraid my domestic felicity may be disturbed, he said. Miss Gabriel had an epileptic fit yesterday, and she confessed when she recovered that she had been subject to them when a child, and since then had occasionally experienced them. Dangerous, then, I asked. In themselves, not in the least, said he. If she was sitting in her chair or lying in bed when one occurred, there would be nothing to trouble about, but, but if one were to occur while she was cooking dinner or beginning to come downstairs, she might fall into the fire or tumble down the whole flight. We'll hope no such deplorable calamity will happen. Now, if you've finished your coffee, let us go into the laboratory. Not that I've got anything very interesting in the way of new records, but I've introduced a second battery with a very strong induction coil into my apparatus. I find that if I link it up with my record, given that the record is a, a fresh one, it stimulates a certain nerve center. It's odd, isn't it? That the same forces which so encourage the dead to live would certainly encourage the living to die. If a man received the full current, one has to be careful in handling it. Yes, and what then, you ask? The night was very hot, and he threw the windows wide before he settled himself cross-legged on the floor. I'll answer your question for you, he said. Though I believe we've talked of it before, supposing I had not a fragment of brain tissue only but a whole head, let's say, or best of all, a complete corpse, I think I could expect to produce more than mere speech through the gramophone. The dead lips themselves, perhaps, might utter, God, what, what is that? From close outside, at the bottom of the stairs, leading from the dining room which we had just quitted to the library, where we now sat, there came a crash of glass, followed by the fall as of something heavy which bumped from step to step, and was finally flung onto the threshold against the door with the sound as knuckles rapping on it, and demanding admittance. Orden sprang up and threw the door open, and there lay half inside the room and half on the landing outside, the body of Miss Gabriel. Round her were splinters of broken bottles and glasses, and from a cut in her forehead as she lay ghastly with face upturned, the blood trickled into her thick gray hair. Horton was on his knees beside her, dabbing his handkerchief on her forehead. Bah! That's not serious, he said. There's neither a vein nor artery cut. I'll just bind that up first. He tore his handkerchief into strips, which he tied together and made a dexterous bandage, covering the lower part of her forehead, but leaving her eyes unobscured. They stared with a fixed, meaningless steadiness as he scrutinized them closely. But there's worse yet, he said. There's been some severe blow on the head. Help me to carry her into the laboratory. Get round up her feet and lift underneath her knees when I'm ready. There. Now put your arm right under and carry her. Her head swung limply back as he lifted her shoulders and he propped it up against his knee. 
where it mutely nodded and bowed as his leg moved, as if in silent assent to what we were doing, and the mouth, at the extremity of which there had gathered a little lather, lolled open. He still supported her shoulders as I fetched a cushion on which to place her head, and presently she was lying close to the low table on which stood the gramophone of the dead. Then, with light, deft fingers, he passed his hands over her skull, pausing as he came to the spot just above and behind her right ear. Twice again his fingers groped and lightly pressed, while the shut eyes and concentrated attention on the intrepid, what his trained touch revealed. Her skull is broken into fragments just here, he said. In the middle there is a piece completely severed from the rest, and the edges of the cracked pieces must be pressing on her brain. His right arm was lying palm upward on the floor. With one hand he felt her wrist with fingertips. Not a sign of pulse, he said. She's dead in the ordinary sense of the word, but life persists in an extraordinary manner, you may remember. She can't be wholly dead in a moment unless every organ is blown to bits. But soon she will be dead if we don't relieve the pressure on the brain. That's the first thing to be done. While I'm busy at that, shut the window, will you? Make up the fire. In this sort of case, the vital heat, whatever that is, leaves the body very quickly. Make the room as hot as you can. Fetch an oil stove and turn on the electric radiator and stoke up a roaring fire. The hotter the room is, the more slowly will the heat of life leave her. Already he'd opened his cabinet of surgical instruments and taken out of it two drawers full of bright steel which he laid on the floor beside her. I heard the granting chink of scissors severing her long gray hair and as I busied myself with laying and lighting the fire in the hearth, a kindling in the old stove which I found by Horton's directions in the pantry, I saw that his lancet was busy on the exposed skin. He had placed some vaporizing spray heated by a spirit lamp close to her head and as he worked, its fizzing nozzle filled the air with some clean and aromatic odor. Now and then, he threw out an order. Bring me that electric lamp out on the long cord, he said. I haven't got enough light. Don't look at what I'm doing if you're squeamish, for it makes you feel faint. I shan't be able to attend to you. I suppose that violent interest in what he was doing overcame any qualm that I might have had, for I looked quite unflinching over his shoulder as I moved the lamp about till it was in such a place that it threw its beam directly into a dark hole at the edge of which depended a flap of skin. Into this he put his forceps, and as he withdrew them they grasped a piece of blood-stained bone. That's better, he said, and the room's warming up well, but there's no sign of a pulse yet. Go on stoking, will you, till the thermometer on the wall there registers a hundred degrees. When next, on my journey from the coal cellar, I looked, two more pieces of bone lay beside the one I'd seen extracted, and presently referring to the thermometer, I saw that between the oil stove and the roaring fire and the electric radiator, I'd raised the room to the temperature he wanted. Soon, peering fixedly at the seat of his operation, he felt for her pulse again. Not a sign of returning vitality. And I've done all that I can. There's nothing more possible that can be devised to restore her. As he spoke to the zeal 
of the unrivaled surgeon relaxed, and with a sigh and shrug, he rose to his feet and mopped his face. And suddenly the fire and eagerness blazed there again. The gramophone, he said. The speech center's close to where I've been working, and it's quite uninjured. Good heavens, what a wonderful opportunity. She served me while living, and she shall serve me dead. And I can stimulate the motor nerve sensor, too, with the second battery. We may see a new wonder tonight. Some qualm of horror shook me. No, don't, I said. It's terrible. She's just dead. I shall go if you do. But I've got exactly the conditions I've long been wanting. And I simply can't spare you. You must be witness. I must have a witness. Why, man, there's not a surgeon or a psychologist in the kingdom who would not give an eye or an ear to be in your place right now. She's dead. I pledge you my honor on that, and it's grand to be dead if you can help the living. Once again, in a far fiercer struggle, horror and the incessant curiosity strove together in me. Be quick, then, said I. Ha! That's right, exclaimed Horton. Help me to lift her onto the table by the gramophone. The cushion, too. I can get a place more easily with her head a little raised. He turned on the battery, and with the movable light close behind him, brilliantly illuminating what he sought, he inserted the needle of the gramophone into the jagged aperture in her skull. For a few minutes, as he groped and explored there, there was a silence, and then quite suddenly... Miss Gabriel's voice, clear and unmistakable, and of the normal loudness of human speech, issued from the trumpet. Guess I always said that I'd be even with him, came the articulated syllables. He used to knock me about, he did, when he came home drunk, and often I was black and blue with bruises. But I'll give him a redness for the black and blue. The record grew blurred. Instead of articulate words, there came from it a gobbling noise. By degrees that cleared, and we were listening to some dreadful, suppressed sort of laughter, hideous to hear. On and on it went. Got into some sort of rut, said Horton. She must have laughed a lot to herself. For a long time, we got nothing more except the repetition of the words we'd already heard and the sound of that suppressed laughter. Then Horton drew toward him the second battery. I'll try stimulation of the motor nerve centers, he said. Watch your face. He propped the gramophone needle in position and inserted it into her fractured skull, the two poles of the second battery, moving them about there very carefully. As I watched her face, I saw with a freezing horror that her lips were beginning to move. Her mouth is moving, I cried. She can't be dead. He peered into her face. Nonsense, he said. That's only the stimulus from the current. She's been dead half an hour. Ah, what's coming now? The lips lengthened into a smile. The lower jaw dropped, and from her mouth came the laughter we'd heard just now through the gramophone. And then the dead mouth spoke with a mumble of unintelligible words, a bubbling torrent of incoherent syllables. 
I'll turn the full current on, he said. The head jerked and raised itself. The lips struggled for utterance, and suddenly she spoke swiftly and distinctly. Just when he'd got his razor out, she said, I came up behind him and put my hand over his face, bent his neck down over the chair with all my strength. I picked up the razor with one slit. (laughs) That was the way to pay him out. And I didn't lose my head, but I lathered his chin well, and I put the razor in his hand and left him there. Went downstairs and cooked his dinner for him. And then an hour afterwards, as he didn't come down, I went up to see what kept him. It was a nasty cut in his neck that had kept him. Gordon suddenly withdrew the two poles of the battery from her head, and even in the middle of her word, the mouth ceased working and lay rigid and open. My God, he said, there's a tale for dead lips to tell, but we'll get more yet. Exactly what happened next, I never knew. It appeared to me that as he still leaned over the table with the two poles of the battery in his hand, his foot slipped and he fell forward across it. There came a sharp crack and a flash of blue dazzling light, and there he lay face downward with arms that just stirred and quivered. With his fall, the two poles that must momentarily have come into contact with his hand were jerked away again and lifted him and laid him on the floor. But his lips, as well as those of the dead woman, had spoken for the last time. 